Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about Helaman 7 through 12. Isn't that right, Bryce? Yep. Okay. So what's in here? All right. So let's go back to last week. If you didn't hear last week's podcast, I want to point out that the book of Helaman is very, very unique because it's a pattern of our day. Third Nephi is a pattern of the second coming. The way Jesus came to the Nephites in the Book of Mormon the first time is very similar to the way Jesus is going to come to the world the second time. So third Nephi is a pattern of the second coming, which puts us in the Book of Helaman. We are pre-second coming. And so I think what the Lord is doing here is he's trying to set the stage to say, here are some of the things you will deal with prior to the second coming. And the Lord never points out a problem without pointing out solutions. So the book of Helaman is filled with challenges that we're going to face in our day and their antidotes. So last week, we talked about one of them, and that was, we talked about the fact that the Lamanites march in with their armies and take possession of Zarahemla. And so war is going to be prevalent in the latter days. But I think this is more than just saying, hey, we're going to be involved in physical wars. I think he's trying to say, notice that the army got all the way to the heart of the Nephite nation. The latter days is going to be filled with wars of the heart, conflict of people's hearts. I mean, if you look around at what's going on in our nation today, you can see that there's a whole lot of conflicts of the heart going on. And so the antidote was clearly what Moroniah couldn't do with the sword. He tried to get their lands back with the sword, and he couldn't do it. So Nephi and Lehi take over, and they go down and preach the gospel, and the Lamanites give up the lands that the Nephites couldn't win back with the sword. And the point the Book of Mormon is making, a very powerful point, is that the gospel is the answer. That if we do things the Lord's way, we solve the problems much better than anything we could do our way. The Lord's solutions to our financial challenges will, will solve our financial challenges. The Lord's solutions to our marriages and our relationships will solve the problems that no one else in the world can solve. And so that was kind of the point that conflicts of the heart are resolved by the gospel and sometimes only the gospel. So now we go back to, okay, how else is the book of Helaman like the latter days? Well, Mike, go back to chapter 2 and tell us the story. What's going on in Helaman? I know this was last week, but we're going to set it up, and then we're going to give the antidote in this week's podcast. So what, what's another aspect that we should be looking for in our day if Helaman is a pattern of our day? The Gideon robbers are looking to get power. So if you go to Helaman 2, verse 8, it kind of gives us the the breakdown of their motives. Look at verse 8. It says, when the servant of Helaman had known all the heart of Kishkumen and how it was his object, or I'm going to change that word to motive, to murder, and also that it was his object of all those who belonged to his band to murder and to rob and to gain power. And this was their secret plan or their combination. And so these guys, these Gadiant robbers, as they're going to be called, 
they're going to try to find a way to gain power over the government. But really, I think what they're also looking for in the middle of that verse is power over man, power over the souls of men or power the, over my life. Yeah, it, it's not just it's not just about money, but it's about all kinds of power and it's manifested in all kinds of different ways. And so in the 7th through 10th chapter, we read this story about the death of the chief judge. And we read about how Nephi is he ba- makes the prediction and says, "Hey, this is happening and this is why and it's it's indicative of of your sickness." And so there's another thing happening here where we have the problem identified of secret combinations, but in 7 through 10 of Helaman, we also have the solution. And the solution is going to be, well, in this instance right here, is to listen to Nephi and follow his counsel. And we can kind of extrapolate this and apply it in our life and see how that works today. But that's the overarching story that's kind of woven through Helaman is this idea of secret combinations. Let's talk about modern-day secret combinations. Because in my perception, most Latter-day Saints look around their lives and say, this is not something we deal with. They look at war, wars of the heart, oh my gosh, that's everywhere. We have wars of the heart everywhere. And we're going to talk about pride later on. Oh yes, pride's very prevalent. But this is the one where Latter-day Saints often brush this off and say, no, we don't deal with secret combinations like they did in the Book of Mormon. So I know there's lots of examples, and, there, and secret combinations is a huge category, and we're just going to pick one little sliver to say, here's one that the Lord called out years ago. Let's do Moses 5, because I love the title that he comes up with there, and he reveals Satan's secret. And I like to call this like the basic level of secret combinations, or it's going to be called the Mayhan Principle by a guy by the name of Hugh Nibley. Who, we're going to read some of his quotes. He's just brilliant. But this is the story where Cain is kind of upset. And verse 29 of Moses 5, he swears by the throat to Satan. And then he says, you know, don't tell anybody this secret. And so verse 30 says, Satan swore to Cain that he would do according to his commands, and all things were done in secret. And then Cain said, so truly I am Mayhem. Yeah. So let's point out in verse 30, one reason they're called secret combinations is because they do things in secret. Yeah. They do things in secret. But I love where you're going in verse 31, because another reason they're called secret combinations is because they know a secret. Yeah. So what's the secret they know, Mike? Well, I think the secret here is Cain kills his brother and takes his stuff. He takes his property. I think the secret, or one of them, is in the middle of verse 31 of Moses 5. Look what it says. I am Mahan, the master of this great secret, that I may murder and get gain. Wherefore, Cain was called Master Mahan, and he gloried in his wickedness. I think the secret is this idea that Satan reveals to Cain is that I can take someone and convert their life into property. And there's all kinds of manifestations of this. And again, that requires power. So secret combinations seek power so that they can convert my life into their money. They can get rich off of me. Now look at verse 33. Why does Cain kill Abel? If you look at verse 33, what does he say? I got his stuff. I got his stuff. I got his stuff. And there's Satan's secret. Satan's secret is how to turn, how to gain the power you need in order to turn someone's life into money so that you get rich. If I rob somebody and I kill them, I get their wallet. But what if you can make somebody always have to pay you? What if you can get them addicted, right? So let's crank it up a notch and go to the latter days, because Satan's had a lot of experience 
He's been able to figure out how to do this really well. So now, watch the Lord call out a secret combination in our day. Yes, secret combinations are around us everywhere, and they are destroying the church. And they're destroying the lives of the people that you love. And yet, it's a combination that the Lord called out. Let's turn to section 89. Yeah, yeah, we got to do that. It's the word of wisdom. So what is the connection between Satan's secret about control over your life so that he can turn your life into his money and the word of wisdom? Are you starting to see it? See, a lot of us sometimes only associate health with the word of wisdom. But listen to what the Lord says. You've got that verse, Mike? Yeah, listen. He, he gives you the wise the, right here. Yeah, the reason the Lord gives us a word of wisdom. What does he say, Mike? So verse 4, section 89, the Lord says, In consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, and then he says, I'm going to give you this revelation. I think the Lord is telling Joseph and the saints, if you want to get ahead of this, if I can get my saints as a people to avoid certain substances, because there's going to be a combination in the last days where, whereby people can become addicted to these substances, and it can be a massive money-making venture. And so if you think about some of the big money-making ventures in the world where men and women are enslaved, I think this is one example. I think there's a lot of examples, and sometimes it's so close to home. I don't want to get too political and have people say, oh, here we go. They're talking about politics or whatnot. But I think this is one of those that's a low-hanging fruit. It's right there in the scriptures, and the Lord says, here it is. This is why I'm giving you this. But there's others as well, other secret combinations. One of them could is a clear one that the prophets talk about a lot, is the money-making scheme that wicked men have begun, and it's been going on since the dawn of time, but converting people into property, uh, a good example of this would be pornography. And all the, the ills associated with that, from the sex slavery to um, all the, the forms of bondage that that puts people in, I think that's another one where the Lord's like, you know what, I want to keep the saints out of that. And by the way, the word for saints, Kodesh, means to be separate means to be holy, means to be different. And so even though the world's doing this, and the Lord says, I know these things are acceptable to the world, if you want to be a saint, if you want to be a holy one, you've got to be outside of that stuff. Because otherwise they're going to have power over you. And we don't want that. They're going to control you. And so I think we can call out the ones the Lord calls out. Think about the tobacco industry. They have figured out how to put a substance in your life that will addict you and cause you to pay them thousands and thousands of dollars over your lifetime. They are going to control you and steal your money and end up killing you because they have power over you through that addiction. And so the Lord waved his arms years ago and said, don't let this happen. You need to recognize that there is a secret combination out there. And I'm fascinated that about 10 years ago, the tobacco industry started to see a decline in smokers. So what did they do? I'm sure they sat together in a conspiracy, and they got together in some room and said, how can we make it cool again? How can we make it appealing? And now all of a sudden, they've invented all these vaping technologies that have just brought the same thing back. They're not stupid. And now they're making all sorts of money with that same power over the flesh. And so there's an example of a secret combination. The Lord calls out the alcohol industry and says, look, they have figured out a way to convince people, especially teenagers, that alcohol is cool. 
and it's desirable. And boom, they have power over you. You will give them money for the rest of your life, and that will often end up destroying you. So there's an example of modern-day secret combinations. And Mike and I could go on and on and on. And that's not the purpose of this podcast. But as you look around your life, see if there are areas in which conspiring men and women have used an addiction that you have to control you. Even if it's not a substance that you eat, maybe it's something that you have to have. You have to do. You have to have something. Okay, Bryce, now you're striking too close. My Coke Zero addiction is coming out, so I'm starting to feel guilty, Bryce, so can you stop now? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But you get the idea, right? And we don't want to sit there and belabor this because then all of a sudden – you know, we can get really discouraged. But the point is that if you've never seen secret combinations around us and surrounding us, they are consuming us. And most of many of the Latter-day Saints that are falling astray today are falling astray because there was a conspiracy and there was power over them. And now they are paying that dear price. I'm reading a book right now to those of you that love Brandon Sanderson. He's a Latter-day Saint. He's a best-selling author, and he wrote a book called Warbreaker. And in the book, there's this whole system of magic, and it's this other kind of world. But one of the things that happens in this book is you can take, if you have a certain kind of power, you can take someone's breath, which is a portion of their life, and you can convert it into wealth. And so some of the wealthy people that are like the high priests in this world have 200 breaths or 500 breaths. And you can see Brandon Sanderson and working with the Mayhem Principle and extrapolating it and putting it into a fantasy book. And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, he's talking about the same thing. Yeah, It's the same thing. Hugh Nibley wrote a book called Timely and the Timeless, and he talks about how he went across the sea with the 101st Airborne Division. Now, he was in the intelligence unit because he knew all these languages, so he wasn't on the front line. But he worked with the higher-ups, and he went over... And they were just devastating, going through France and driving their way to Germany. And he, Hugh Nibley is certainly, the way he writes about war, he's not uh, waving the flag and saying, go, go, go. He kind of has a sense of, of uh, foreboding and doom with war. He's not one that beats his chest and talks about, you know, hey, I went to war. Um, he's kind of sad about it. But at the same time, he sees that it was necessary. We had to liberate Europe. But at towards the end of the war, he talks about the mayhem principle in his book. And he says, um, I took my Jeep all over Western Europe and beheld the whole thing as a vast business operation. He says, I well remember the pain and distress expressed at headquarters as the war was winding down. And twilight descended on the brilliant military careers of these men, high living and unlimited financial manipulations. And how great was the rejoicing when the new concept of brush fire wars was announced to the staff. A simple plan to keep the whole thing going, safely contained and at a safe distance. O peace, where is thy sting? The mayhem principle was still in full force and remains so to this day. It's just just so poignant where he says that these leading officials in the war were excited to think, hey, we can keep this war machine going. We can keep fighting wars after this war is over and how they were so sad as it was winding down. And Hugh Nibley just laments about this. And he says, is this really what we ought to be doing? And if you think about this historically, the United States since World War II, we've been in the business of war. And Eisenhower warned us about this. The phrase I think he used was the the vast military industrial complex, I think was the phrase that he used. And this is the mayhem principle. 
There's another great quote in chapter four of his book, Timely and the Timeless, under the, the heading of subduing the earth. And we'll put it in the show notes. But essentially what he says, he talks about he was walking around 7th North in Utah, and he says he saw a bunch of boys waving sticks and shouting while they had found a quail and they wanted to kill it. And he's like, why? And they're like, well, because it's alive. We've got to kill it. And he just talks about in this book, I don't know if that's what the Lord meant when he said, subdue the earth, right? We don't need to kill everything that's below us. And then he asks this question, if we kill everything that's below us or convert everything below us into property, what's left? So interesting thoughts from Hugh Nibley. Now, that's the scary side, and we don't want necessarily dwell on, oh, my goodness, everything around me is, is, cons- is conspiracy and everyone's out to get me. The whole point of, of Helaman is to raise our awareness and say, look, this is going to be a problem in your day. Secret combinations are going to be concerning, but the answer is also available. So this is where your mind needs to start look at anomalies. There's, there's an anomaly in Helaman. And your mind needs to notice the anomalies. And one anomaly is where the Lord takes a long time to tell a story. So right in the middle of Helaman, right in the middle of it, is a very, very long story, which I imagine the Lord could tell in one chapter. But he belabors this this story. He just draws it out. And it's a wonderful story. But that should catch your attention. You should say, oh my goodness, this is a very drawn-out story. Why is the Lord drawing this story out? What's he trying to say? And long story short, the Lord is telling a story that Nephi saw through their secret. He's taking three chapters to tell that simple story that they had a secret conspiracy, and Nephi saw through it. Now, do you see the point? And so again, we're, we're shouting out to everyone, prophets see through the secrets. Let me take you back to Mosiah. I know we've read this before, but we really need to read this again because it is such a, a great reminder of what do prophets see. This is where Ammon shows up to rescue Limhi. And Limhi's telling him about the Jaredite plates and is there someone that can translate them? And he says, yes, there is someone that can translate them. He's called a prophet. This is Mosiah chapter 8. He's a seer and a prophet. And then verse 17 is this beautiful list. What do seers see? And I love this list. And every time I look at Russell Nelson, I just think, what is it that that man sees? Because he looks like an ordinary man, but he's a seer. Look at this list. But a seer can know of things which are past. And also things which are to come. So prophets, seers, and revelators see past and future. And by them shall all things be revealed, or rather shall secret things be made manifest. I would just shout that one out. Prophets see secret things. Hidden things shall come to light. Things which are not known shall be made known by them. And things shall be made known by them which otherwise could not be known. In other words, if you live in a society with secret combinations, which not to scare you, but we hope Mike and I have convinced you that we do. We live surrounded by secret combinations and our children are being affected. Our friends are being affected. Some of the people I love and you love 
are being conned by the conspiracy, and the conspiracy has power over their lives, and they are paying dearly. So what's the answer? You better know how to follow a prophet, because prophets see through the secrets. Now, back in Helaman, one of the most tragic verses of them all, Mike, you know right where we're going, right? What happens after he sees through their secrets? So after the chief judge is murdered and and everything's laid out, and then they're like, oh, he's a prophet. This verse to me just strikes me so much. It's chapter 10, verse 1. So after everything's laid out and he, and he shows them what's going on, look what it says. It came to pass there arose a division among the people insomuch that they were divided hither and thither, and they went their ways. And then it says, leaving Nephi alone. He stands all by himself. And there's a video the church made with this, and I love it because at the end of the video, everybody leaves and Nephi's just standing there alone. And that image, to me is what a witness of Jesus has to go through. They have to experience being alone. Um, I want to talk about the call narrative of Isaiah, because I think this also fits in in Nephi's um, story. So the call narrative of Isaiah is Isaiah 6, but it's also in 2 Nephi 16. A good way to remember the Isaiah chapters is just add 10. 2 Nephi 16 is Isaiah 6. 2 Nephi 17 is Isaiah 7. That's one of my tricks. But look at the call narrative here. Are you going to the Nephi version or the uh, Isaiah I'm just going to go to the Book of Mormon, yeah. So it, it's, all, it's all good. But in the, in the Isaiah 6 or 2 Nephi 16 call narrative, um, Isaiah has, he's there at the veil, and, the, and verse 4 says, the post of the door moved and the house was filled with smoke, and he realizes that he's unclean. He sees the Lord in verse 6 on his throne. And then in the sixth verse, he sees the Lord in verse 5 of Isaiah 6 or 2 Nephi 16. But then in verse 6, the Lord puts a coal on his, you know, on his mouth. That's symbolic in verse 6 and 7. I don't think that's literal, but he's cleansed. But then notice the question, verse 8, who am I going to send? And, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Now, this is what Nephi says. This is what Isaiah says. This is what Joseph Smith says. And this is what every missionary who decides to go serve says, I will go. But then look at verse 9 and 10. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but they understood not. And see ye indeed, but they perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted and be healed. These are very rough verses, but this is also understandable to those that have served the Lord. And that's the, that's the invitation of the gospel. That right there in one verse is the invitation of Jesus to all human beings. But the tragedy is they people, don't see. People don't listen. They don't hear. A prophet just saw through a secret and they walked away. We are led by prophets, seers, and revelators who have the ability to see through the secrets. Joseph Smith saw through the secret how many years ago? How many years ago did Joseph Smith see through the conspiracy of the tobacco industry? And we today still have people who are walking away, leaving them alone. He even had the solution for slavery. Yeah. He says, all we have to do is take these lands, sell them, free the slaves, 
pay back the people that own the slaves. We could end slavery right now. Nobody has to die. It was a simple plan. Prophets see the solution. Every six months, they stand up in general conference and they wave their arms and say, here's what we see coming. They saw the destruction, they saw the disintegration of the family coming. So back in 1999, they came out with the proclamation. They saw it happening. They see through the secrets. They see through the darkness. And yet, do we walk away and leave them alone? There's hope, even in this narrative. And we're going to see this in Samuel's writing. We're going to see this in Mormon's lament. Notice the question. He says, Lord, how long? So I'm going to go teach, and many of them aren't going to listen, but how long? In verse 11, the Lord says, Till the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land utterly desolate, and the Lord's removed men away, for there'll be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now in Isaiah's day, that was prophetic of the destruction of the house of Israel, that they would be taken by the Assyrians, but it was also indicative of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in Nephi's day, and later in Jesus's day, and even future. And so it's kind of sad, and we don't want to end in those verses in the call narrative, but this is Mormon's lament in Helaman 12, where, wherein he says, people are just unstable. They just don't listen. It's his frustration. It's every missionary's frustration. I have a son on a mission right now, and sometimes we have these conversations where he's like, Dad, this is hard. And I'm like, yeah, you did not sign up for a cakewalk. But look at the end. Look at verse 13. Now, this is very difficult in the English, but here it is. But yet there shall be a tenth, and they shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. What in the heck is that saying? Translation, the Lord saying, Isaiah, I know it's going to be hard. But just like an oak tree, if it's cut down, the life of the tree is still in there. And it'll come back. They shall return. And this is going to be the overarching message that Mormon's going to throw out, where he's going to say, this book I'm writing, there's going to be people who listen. And we're that people. The Latter-day Saints are. Yeah, that's us. We are the ones that will follow the prophets. We're the ones that will listen. We will hear and see and understand so that the Lord will convert us and heal us. So there's hope. There's hope. The Latter-day Saints are, which means we of all people on earth should be a prophet following, a seeing, an understanding, a hearing people. And we ought not to be fooled by the conspiracy. And yet, man, it's tempting. We've got to learn to follow a prophet. If the Lord didn't make that clear in the book of Helaman, boy, we missed it. Because three chapters right in the center to tell this very long story that says prophets see through the secrets. It could have been two verses. It could have been Mormon saying, you know what? Sezoran was killed. Nephi predicted it. The brother killed him, Seantum. And everybody didn't believe. The story in 7 through 10 could have been two verses, couldn't it, Bryce? Yeah. And the Lord takes three chapters to tell it. That's got to be his way of waving his arms to say, are you seeing this? Prophets see through the secrets. You've got to learn to knock, walk away from them and be faithful to them. It's a fun story. I think it's good to read. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but when I've taught like groups of young people, we actually made a mystery. I did like a murder mystery and I would convert their names. Like instead of the five that go and run, I called it Mr. Fife. It's like clue, right? And we, we'd play kind of a clue game and like who's the murderer and it's a lot of fun. But as much as that's fun and everything, the point 
is exactly what you just said. Yeah. It's that prophets can see through all the mist. And Mike and I will go back, and we'll do 7, 8, 9 in just a minute, but let's keep going. Let's go to chapter 10, and may I say, if the problems in Helaman are a pattern of the problems in our day, if the solutions in Helaman are a pattern of the solutions in our day, then may I loudly suggest that Nephi is a pattern of the prophets that the Lord will send in our day. We are about to read Helaman chapter 10, a beautiful description of Nephi, but we might as well be reading a description of Russell Nelson. I believe the Lord is saying, this is what I will do with my servants in the latter days as we prepare for the end. So let's jump into chapter 10. All right, so chapter 10. So the first three verses of chapter 10 is Nephi's alone, and he's just pondering. He's like, what just happened? I, I often wonder, did the revelation come when he was on the move? Elder Oaks talks about this a lot. He says, you know what, when we're on the move, revelation comes. And he's probably sitting going, you know, what just happened or how did this work? And as he's pondering, he gets this revelation. So look in verse 4. He has this conversation with the Lord, and he gets what we call the sealing power. So verse 4 says, the Lord says to him, Blessed art thou, Nephi, for those things which thou hast done, for I have beheld how thou hast with unweariness declared the word, which I have given unto thee, unto this people. And thou hast not feared them, but hast not sought thine own life, but hast sought my will, and to keep my commandments. And now because thou hast done this with such unweariness, behold, I will bless thee forever, and I will make thee mighty in word, and in deed, and faith, and in works. And essentially, from this verse on, into the 11th verse, the Lord says, you can do And you can say whatever you say or do, and it will happen. It shall be done. Look at verse 7. You'll have power to seal on earth, and it will be sealed in heaven. In verse 8, if you say to the temple, be rent in twain, it shall be done. Uh, if If you say, God will smite this people, verse 10, it shall come to pass. And so in, in essence, he's given unlimited power. And that's, that's pretty heavy stuff to think about. And you know what does it mean in this context? And what I want to talk about briefly is this idea about the ceiling power and about God's power. And I just love this quote. This is from Temple in the Cosmos. And it says, what does this do to the oneness of God? It doesn't do anything at all to it. In nothing is the idea of the real oneness of God more convincingly apparent than in the contemplation of the real cosmos. But the one God always remains in control, for only on condition of being exactly like him can souls take the next step. God will trust you to represent him, to act for him, only if he knows that you will do exactly what he would do in all circumstances. Then he can leave you alone. Why? Because he trusts you. You're like him, a perfect identity as far as your function is concerned. You can just carry on his work. It's like arriving at the same answer to a problem. He will trust you only if he is sure you will come out with the same answer he did. I love that. That's on page 287 of Temple in the Cosmos. In other words, Nephi getting this power doesn't destroy God's power or God's oneness. It actually expands God and makes him greater. And another quote, Hunibly says this, We are here for the purpose of being saved, and we also must be safe. Exaltation is something more. All will be saved in the kingdom of God, but who is safe? Who can be trusted? 
With reference to a man's responsibilities, we are here to be tested whether we can be trusted to take charge on our own, because if you can be trusted completely, you do the very same thing God would do. You'd represent him completely. So there is only one God, only one ruling mind, and only one pattern after all. The oneness of God is never jeopardized here. The Askew Manuscript says, and this is just an old manuscript from the 12th century in Egypt, it says this, There are many mansions, many regions, many degrees, worlds, spaces, and heavens, but all have one law. And if you keep that law, you too can become creator of worlds. An astonishing statement. And so I think to me, Bryce, this sealing power that Nephi has extended, that he has given, is God also, to me, he's hinting, oh, by the way, I want to extend this to all my children. This is my reading of section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And Nephi shows us the pattern to arrive at that point. Because you can't have it until you'll do with it what God would do with it. Yes, yes. And that becomes the great test of life. If God gave you unlimited power, what would you do with it? Well, you can't have it until you will do with it what God does with it. And that's what I love about these chapters is what does Nephi do with that power? He calls down a famine so that they repent. I love in verse 12, as soon as, because he's on his way home, he's been gone, he's been up preaching to the Lamanites, and he comes home, he's tired, he wants to go home when he sees all this, and he's praying in his garden, he's on his way to his house. But verse 12, when the Lord had spoken these words unto Nephi, he did stop and did not go unto his house, but did return unto the multitude who were scattered about upon the face of the land and began to declare unto them the word of the Lord. That's his heart, and that's why he gets God's power because he will do with it what God does with it. And in, in the ultimate sense, who's going to the celestial kingdom? Well, if you go to the celestial kingdom and inherit God's power, that means you will do with it what God does. And that's the lesson for today. And again, I go back to our modern-day prophets, seers, and revelators. I would suggest that they have that desire, that they do not want to do anything but what God wants them to do. It kind of reminds me of the story of Aladdin. Do you remember where they're introduced to the genie and you've got the bad guy, Jafar. And what does Jafar want to do with the power? He wants his power. I want to take your power unto myself. Yeah. Or even in Hollywood, there's movies out there that portray, you know, what would you do if you had unlimited power? When men get unlimited power, what do they do with it? Pretty much that they don't do good things. And they spend it on themselves. Well, great lesson. You shouldn't have it. None of us should have God's power until we will do with it. I love the end of verse 5. He says, Nephi, you get this power because you won't ask anything that is contrary to my will. I love this quote by Neil A. Maxwell. This is in his book, We Will Prove Them Herewith, but he just says, Successive small and connected steps can, with unwearying diligence, finally bring us where we wish to go. For God regards men not as they are merely but as they shall be, not as they shall be merely, but as they are now growing towards the image after which he made them. And then he says, how vital is it that we patiently pursue his purposes for us? Clearly, just as the accumulation of small things is in fact the foundation of the Lord's great work, so also are the small steps that bring great blessings. The Lord has both tenderly and encouragingly reminded us of the following. Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. And so Elder Maxwell says, I, to me, he's saying, and he's quoting this verse, he's quoting Helaman 10.4, where he says, you can be just like Nephi. And how do you do it? 
you just put one foot in front of the other. It's not in the big things, but it's in consistently doing the small things that you know that you should be doing. So if you get his power when you would do with it what he does, then the test is whatever he has given you power over. Do you use those powers as he wants them used? Take, for example, the power of procreation. Do you use the power of procreation as he wants it used? If you do, you are saying to him, if you give me more power, I will use it as you want me to use it. And that seems to be the great lesson. I love that Nephi did that. I I just think that one of the messages that we're hearing is that in the latter days, we are led by leaders of the church that have that power because their heart and their mind is God's and they have served him unwearyingly and that we can rest assured that no matter what we need done, we can do it because we are led by leaders of the church who have that power. Isn't Helaman trying to suggest this book is a pattern of the latter days? Therefore, rest assured that those who lead us today will be like Nephi in the book of Helaman. But we have to learn to trust them. They can do what needs to be done for this work to go forward. Now, it doesn't mean they always move forward their hand, right, Mike? So sometimes they have to hold their hand back. It reminds me of the story of Alma and Amulek when the people of Ammonihah were being killed. And Amulek says, let's just use our power, the power that God has given us to stop them. And Alma says, you know what? The Lord has told me no at this point. And so I think sometimes people think that a prophet is just like, they just have an unlimited supply of fairy dust and they're just going to make everything wonderful. And that's another message in Helaman that in this instance, the prophet of the Lord says, you know what, let's make it difficult for these people. And why? Helaman 12 is just Mormon lamenting. And he just says, for some reason, as human beings, we do better in circumstances where everything's not perfect. We thrive and we come to the Lord when we have to struggle. And so, and that's an important principle. It's difficult to handle, but Mormon's Lament is, is a great chapter. So that's kind of what's going on in 7 through 10. Um, another thing that I really like about this, and it's fun to mess around with the years and look, because Mormon's just doing history, and he's just going, boom, and this year this happens, and in this year ha- this happens. And we can get lost in the details, but one of the things Mormon's trying to illustrate is in a very quick way, we can go from being humble to being jerks, to being full of gratitude to being full of pride. And he's showing you this because he's like, in this year, this happens. And in this year, this happens and so forth. And so this famine that brings them to their knees is really not that long. It's about two or three years, depending on how you're going to do the timing. But that's long enough. One of the things I find interesting here, go to verse six of Helaman 11 and look at the end. It says, even among the Lamanites, as well as among the Nephites, so that they were smitten that did perish by the thousands in the more wicked parts of the land. And I remember the first time I read that, I thought, okay, how can a famine distinguish between me being righteous and wicked? And then I did a careful reading. For four years before the famine, Nephi goes on a mission, and he goes and tells everybody that it's coming. He says for four years, if you start in Helaman 10, 7, when he gets the power, to Helaman 11, 2 through 5, when he starts using the power in the 73rd year, so from the 69th year to the 73rd year, he goes on a mission and he tells them it's coming. 
I mean, it's all over the place, but it, it's basically the end of chapter 10, starting at about verse 13 to the end. And so my thought is this, maybe the wicked perished because they were the ones who weren't listening, and maybe the righteous were the ones like Joseph of Egypt. That stored it up. That stored it up. That's just a thought. I don't know. The text doesn't say, but I remember the first time I read the end of verse 6, and I'm like, how can a famine, how can calories distinguish between righteousness and wickedness? And to me, they can't. But if I'm listening... I'm doing what I got to do. I'm putting that food aside. And it goes back to our previous comments about section 21, that following a prophet must be done in patience and faith. During those four years, there was no sign of a famine coming. So why would they start to store? There was no evidence that they would need it. There was no evidence that Zarahemla was going to burn down when the righteous left. There was no evidence of a cloud in the sky when they got on Noah's boat. And that's why Following a prophet requires patience and faith. He, I just, I, I read that same thing in the text, Mike, that he went around and warned them. That's what prophets do. They see through, they see the future. And I'm just positive Nephi had them prepared, which is why in the more righteous parts of the lands, they found a way to, to persevere. They found a way to survive. Boy, I just see those four years. If Nephi sees this happening and he's using this power, it probably made him feel bad. I mean, I can't imagine the guilt you would feel knowing this power is going to cause these kind of problems. And so he probably just bent over backwards to warn him about it. So that's good. Um, what about the idea of in short periods of time, we change and we go from being prideful to being humble? Don't you think this is a pattern in here? Yeah. So let's talk about the third. I have always seen three major messages in Helaman. One was wars of the heart. Two was secret combinations. And then there's another one. From the beginning to the end of the book, it's always as soon as they prospered, they got pride. And then something bad would happen and they'd get humble. And then they'd get righteous and then they'd prosper and then they'd get pride. And you just see that whole cycle turn. And we kind of call it the pride cycle. Now, we've put this in our show notes so you can kind of see the graphic that we're using. But I want you to picture a large circle. And at the very top, let's put righteousness. So there's every, every 45 degrees, there's a little notch in this circle. So at the very top, we've got righteousness. Now, think through the pattern of the Book of Mormon and think through your life. What happens when we're righteous? The next notch is blessings. God blesses us. He always does. That's the pattern. When you're righteous, God blesses you to the point that now we get to the next notch. We're now 90 degrees from the top. Now we've become prosperous. And in the book of Helaman, there are numerous times where they become prosperous. And notice back in chapter 3, verse 24, even in the church, there was exceedingly great prosperity in the church, insomuch that there were thousands who did join themselves unto the church and were baptized. And so great was the prosperity of the church, and so many the blessings which were poured out upon the people, that even the high priests and the teachers were themselves astonished. May I suggest that if we are righteous, God will astonish us with the blessings He's willing to pour down upon us. But now the question is, what do you do when prosperity comes? Because most people, when they become prosperous, forget God and turn away from Him. So the next notch in the circle is pride. Why do you think that is? It's just human. I just think we, we don't need God. I remember back in 
First Nephi, we talked about Nephite blindness, and when they become prosperous, they don't feel a need for God. I'm not dependent upon him. I'm not begging for food because I've got lots of food. And so we begin to think that I'm the reason for this. But it's just so natural that prosperity leads to pride, and pride almost always leads to sin. As soon as you think you're better than God, it's back to King Benjamin. As soon as you think you're great, then we lead to sin. And so now we've come halfway around the circle. At the very top of the circle, it's righteousness. And at the very bottom of the circle, it's sin. And this is the most ridiculous thing on earth. And this is what Mormon is going to kind of rebuke in chapter 12, that we went from righteousness to sin. We turned against God because he blessed us. This reminds me of section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 16, where it says, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walks in his own way. That's what you're talking about, right? So I'm going to do it my way. That's right, because I'm good. Yeah. Look at what I've been able to accomplish. So we turn against God because he blessed us. That is the most ridiculous thing. Because God was kind and blessed us, it led to our pride, which led to sin, and it and we turned against him. So the next notch in the circle, sin leads to pain because God loves us, however that pain comes, but sin leads to pain. Now, what should happen when we're in pain? Pain should lead to humility. Pain is often a catalyst for change. It's a symptom of, I've got to fix this. If my knee hurts, <laughs> you don't just keep taking Advil. You've got to figure it out. And right? now you reach out for help. Now you turn to God. Humility leads to the next notch, which is repentance. And repentance leads us back to the top of the circle. We're back to righteousness. But not everybody does that, do they? No. So let's look at what Mormon's trying to say here. Are there shortcuts through this? So let me describe the circle. So at the very top, going in 45-degree increments, we've got righteousness leads to blessings. Blessings leads to prosperity. Now that's a critical moment. Prosperity is at three o'clock, basically. Prosperity leads to pride. Pride leads to sin. So now we're down at six o'clock, and we've gone from 12 to six. We've gone from righteousness to sin because of prosperity. Sin leads to pain, and pain leads to humility. Humility is at nine o'clock. Humility leads to repentance, which leads to righteousness. Now, Mormon, I think, is trying to say there is a shortcut. We don't have to do all this. We don't have to do this. There are actually two shortcuts. And it happens at those critical stages of what do you do in prosperity and what do you do in pain? So Mormon seems to be saying there's an antidote, there's a better way. If prosperity, instead of leading to pride, what should it do, Mike? What's the shortcut here? Well, prosperity could actually lead me to being thankful. I could skip the bottom half of the clock, as it were, and go right to humility and be like, Heavenly Father, thank you so much. It reminds me, at least in North America, of the Thanksgiving holiday. When I was a young boy, Thanksgiving was about getting together with family, and we would talk about our nation and what a miracle it was. And we're so grateful, and we're grateful that you know we have food on the table. And today, it's become... I've noticed just in my lifetime, we had this thing called Black Friday that popped up where we go shopping on Friday. But even now, I think COVID's going to change us. But even now, Black Friday's crept into 
Black Thursday afternoon where the sales on the televisions are at five o'clock. Come and get them right now. I, I want to live in that world where Thanksgiving can just be Thanksgiving. We can just be grateful, right? Yeah. Where prosperity leads to humility. If you make that shortcut, if your prosperity made you humble, and I think that shortcut is the word that appears so often in the book of Helaman, and that's remember. If I could remember and have the gratitude, I could stay in the top half of the circle. And, and what be would humble. you avoid? Think about it. All, well, all the pain. And you all would the avoid sin. sin. You would avoid pride, sin, and pain. You would literally avoid the ba- the painful part of this if your prosperity led to humility. If in, if instead of responding to your prosperity with "I'm great," you went back to King Benjamin's address and you responded to your prosperity with "Man, isn't God great?" And by the way, when you do that, then you're start starting to be like God, and you're giving those blessings to His children. Because King Benjamin's like, if you want to retain this remission of sins, the way you retain it is you clothe the naked, you liberate the captive. You do what God does. You do what God does, yeah. So there's one shortcut, is if prosperity leads to humility instead of pride. But let me point out another shortcut. Going to pain as a switch point, so prosperity is a switch point, but so is pain. Pain usually leads leads us to be humble. But there are some people who respond to pain with bitterness and anger. Do you remember how the Lamanites, every time that they a trial came or affliction hit, they felt wronged and got wroth? So pain can lead to pride. And now I'm cycling through the negative part of the cycle. Pain leads to pride, which leads to sin, which leads to more pain, which leads to pride. And now I'm cycling through the bottom. There are some people whose pain will not lead them to humility. And that's exactly what their Nephites are going to hit at the end of the Book of Mormon. Their pain will not lead them to humility. They keep cycling down that bottom path, and that's what brings their destruction. They will not repent, no matter how painful it gets. And there are those who just cycle down that negative path. So those are three cycles. You can be the one that goes from prosperity to pride, and then from pain to humility, and cycle the big picture— like so many people in the Book of Mormon do, or you can figure out the shortcut. Now, let me show you what the Nephites do. If you'll go back to the end of the war chapters, go back to Alma chapter 62. Now, notice the pain of the war was on their minds, and what the war cost them was on their forefront. Go ahead, Mike. Do you have that? Okay, yeah. So look at 41. Behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depths of humility. To me, this is a really important verse, because what Mormon's trying to do is to draw this image that Bryce is laying out. Pain can lead you to be bitter, or it could lead you to your knees you choose. You choose your attitude. And so at the bottom half of the circle where they're just in pride and then they go to sin and then to pain and then they just keep going back to pride, I call that the black hole, the swirling pit of despair. And I've seen people really struggle with this where everything is somebody else's fault and they don't take responsibility for their actions. There's a book I just finished by Jordan Peterson called 12 Rules for Life, Conquering the Chaos of Our Lives. And he talks about one of the rules of the 12 is 
I've got to own my decisions. I've got to own my good ones and my bad ones. And then another rule is once I have that bad decision and I figured it out, how am I going to change it? You know, he's not a member of the church, but he's teaching the same principles. And the, the principle he's trying to say is don't be in that pit of despair. Clean your room, get up and do something positive. And so I really like verse 41. I had a friend who served in a war-torn country after the war. He was on his mission there. And he said, so many of them lost their faith in God. And it just reminded me of 6241. Should we read 48 as well? Yeah. 48, the people of Nephi began to prosper again in the land and began to multiply and wax exceedingly strong, and they grew rich. So here's the test, right? The the pain softened their heart, and now they've now cycled around, and now they've hit prosperity. So what does the memory, what does remembering the pain of the war do? Again, we're back to that Helaman word. So here it is. But notwithstanding their riches or their strength or prosperity, they were not lifted up in pride. So this is they're skipping the bottom half of the circle. Neither were they slow to remember the Lord their God, but they did humble themselves exceedingly before him. Mormon's showing you what to do, isn't he? And he's even using that word. Look at the next verse. They did remember how great things the Lord had done for them. And I just that's the word that comes jumping out at, of Helaman to me, is remember. Remember. That's the shortcut. So if, if the book of Helaman is saying, in the latter days, prosperity is going to be a problem. Pain is going to be a problem. The pride cycle is going to be a problem. Now tell me he didn't nail that. Tell me the Book of Mormon didn't nail the latter days, that in our day, prosperity and pain will be issues. And what you do in each one of those will determine how you cycle. You know, historically, Bryce, I think our nation has even faced this. We go through boom and bust in our economy all the time, and it just seems like that's the nature of things, right? In 1838, there was a boom and bust. And prior to 1838, if you read some of the accounts of the saints in Kirtland, they thought that Jesus was coming. They thought Joseph Smith was the greatest thing. And in 1838... I'll walk away from There's it. an economic collapse and everything's Joseph's fault. And I think, and then there's Brigham Young, where Brigham Young essentially says, no, I'm following Joseph wherever he leads. And so you have the Heber C. Kimballs and the Brigham Youngs, and then you have some of these other guys that are like, you know, naysayers. It just seems to be a historical fact, isn't it? Yeah. And it, this thing cycles so quickly. Interesting. And sometimes really, now go from Alma chapter 62, where they remembered. Now turn four chapters later. Four chapters later puts us to Helaman 3, and they again, notice in verse 24 through 26, the prosperity. Verse 33, pride. Pride entered into the heart of those that belonged to the church. The prosperity of the church led to pride. So now they're the second time through the cycle, but this time when they hit prosperity, they don't remember and they don't cycle over to humility. They hit pride. And then that pride grows, and then pretty soon you find the Nephite nation turning to sin. This cycle just runs again and again and again. So let's get to Mormon's lament, and then let's go back to the book of Helaman to say, okay, what are the antidotes? Remember is clearly one antidote, but we're going to show you a couple other antidotes. How can you make sure that neither pain nor prosperity lead to pride? So first in Helaman 12, 
it's just like we, we talked about Isaiah's call narrative. It's the same thing where he just says, look how false and unsteadiness is the hearts of the children of men. That's verse one. And then in verse two, it's everything we've been talking about. He says, we may see at the very time when he does prosper as people, and then he increases them in all these things. He says towards the end of verse two, they forget the Lord, their God and trample under their feet, the Holy one. Why? Because of their exceedingly great prosperity. Verse three, and thus we see that except the Lord chastens his people with many afflictions and except he doth visit them with death and terror and famine with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. And so you can just feel Mormon's sadness. Now think about Mormon's perspective. Mormon's writing this after he's seen all this war and all this devastation. And so he's looking back in time and he sees this and he's like, oh, these Nephites, these silly Nephites. As he's read the history, how many times did he watch the Pride Cycle cycle? So many. So many times. So he just probably is just sitting there in frustration saying, I have seen it so many times. And the answer is so simple. Let your prosperity lead you to be humble. Be thankful. Be grateful for God. And you will avoid all these problems. He's just lamenting how foolish we've been. He, he quotes King Benjamin's address, in my opinion, where he says they're less than the dust of the earth. King Benjamin uses that phrase. And why? Why are, why are men less than the dust of the earth? Because dust obeys him. Yeah. Dust honors God. And every one of these, the earth moves hither and hither to the dividing asunder at the command of our great God. Yeah. He, he even quotes, I think, the brass plates. If you look in verse 15, where he talks about the sun standing still, that's Joshua 10. Interestingly, right there at the end of verse 15, this is just me, Mike Day, but I think the end of verse 15 is Joseph as a translator put, for surely it is the earth that moveth and not the sun. I don't know if the cosmology of the ancients understood that. Maybe they did, but I'm okay with Joseph as a translator putting that in there. Translators can do that. But in essence, look at verse 17. A great city can be destroyed by a mountain. That's going to be Moroni. Mormons living after the historical event of that actually happening in 35810. So Mormons doing a lot here, and he's lamenting. But I really like the end of the lament. I think Mormon sees, as much as we mess up, he sees God's mercy. Look what he says in verse 25. I would that all men might be saved. Now, there's some negative in here, too. He says, we read that in the great and last day, some will be cast out. But you see Mormon's heart. He says, I would that all men might be saved. And I think that's a really good approach to have as a missionary or as a prophet or as a a Christian is, man, we want everyone to have this. But yet we see the weakness of men. So I love Mormon's lament for lots of reasons. But one of them is it's Mormon inviting us to skip the bottom half of the circle. And what's funny is it seems to set up the whole book of Helaman. Mormon's lament is... Please choose the better part. And so going back through Helaman, you can tell that he's just throwing in these these little diamonds of truth that would help us be smarter and choose those shortcomings. So let me take you back to Helaman chapter 3, one of my favorite little golden nuggets of truth that Mormon seems to be throwing in in this, in this book. Because he knows the big picture, he knows the story, and he's just, he's throwing this in. So Helaman talks a lot about laying hold upon riches, or Satan laying hold, having a hold on their heart, and that's kind of a play on the word hold. And, and Mormon's going to use that, and he's going to say, verse 29, and yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God. 
Now, this is the brilliance of Mormon, brilliance of Scripture, is he's going to come up with four images, all related to the Book of Mormon, that what God will do to you if you lay hold upon the gospel, whether that's through the Scriptures or through the Spirit or through your covenants, what will happen? So the first image is laying hold. What image in the Book of Mormon comes to mind when I say lay hold upon the Word of God? So he instantly takes our mind back to the iron rod. And he says, look, God can get you to the tree. God can get you through the mist and out of the river if you will lay hold upon the word of God. So one image is the iron rod. The scriptures are an iron rod, and the gospel is an iron rod that we need to lay hold of. Now, the next image is dividing asunder. The gospel, the scriptures, the spirit, the covenants will divide asunder. So what's the image? What in the Book of Mormon? We see swords in the Book of Mormon. We see labor. There are a lot of swords and the imagery of dividing asunder, cutting in half. And so the scriptures, the spirit will divide asunder. It will separate light from darkness for you. If you will turn to God, if you will read the scriptures, if you will keep your covenants, it will divide like a sword. Light and darkness. I, I, I go back to Nephi 16, where he says, The guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. That's another scriptural image, is that, that, that's a sword. And then the next one in verse 29, lead the man of Christ. Lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course. Again, he's pointing back to the Leahona. God will lead you if you will lay hold and follow and be faithful. So the the iron rod, the sword, the leahona, and then verse 30, land their souls. I think he's actually foreshadowing here the boats, the barges of the Jaredites, and how that whole journey about light and air and trusting God, and that if you trust God, if you do all that you can, to follow the Lord. So this is the brother of Jared saying, here, I've brought you these glass stones. Would you touch them? Then God will land your soul into the promised land. You see those images? They're very simple. Lay hold, divide asunder, lead the man of Christ, land their soul. He's just trying to, I just think Mormon here is pulling up all of the images of the Book of Mormon. He's just, he's seeing a problem in the Book of Helaman and he's pointing out the solution. And that the whole Book of Mormon has the solution to allow you to shortcut from prosperity to humility. It's when you lay hold upon the Word of God. It's when you allow the spirit like a sword to separate truth and error. It's when you follow the compass, you follow the liahona. It's when you get in your barges that are tight like a dish and you trust the Lord. There's a beautiful image there of those barges coming to America. If you'll do that in the latter days, then God will be with you and you will prosper and you will not fall down to those bottom portions of the cycle. So, Bryce, I'm going to geek out on everything you just read really quick. I think that the barge could also be Nephi's ship. Yes. And so Nephi went Forward and back. I love that. it's both. And I think everybody who came here, you know, all these people, whether they're of Mulek or of Nephi or of the Jaredites, they all got there by boat. And those are all symbols of kingship and temple. 
And you might be asking, what does a boat have to do with the temple? Well, the way Nephi describes the construction of the ship is similar to the way Moses describes the construction of the Mishkan or the sanctuary or the tent or the tabernacle, as we refer to it in English. That tabernacle was patterned after the way that the Lord patterned it. And the sword and the rod and the liahona are all associated with kingship and coming into God. And so I find that fascinating that these items are all, they're just all linked to the temple and coming into God. So it's multivalent. The Book of Mormon is always giving us layers of text and layers of story. And so that's good. That's really good stuff there in Helaman. We've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? Uh, there, there's a couple more things I just want to hit on before we end. One of them is the two views on the Gadiantans. So go to Helaman 11 and go to verse 31. Verse 31 talks about that they had huge numbers. Look towards the end. It says, because of the exceedingly greatness of their numbers, the robbers infested the mountains. And notice verse 30 of Helaman 11 that says that they, they have this band of robbers. Now, a couple of things I want to draw out. Bryce and I talked about this in the war chapters, but if you look in 28 and 29 of Helaman 11, the Nephites go on the offensive. They go and try to search them out in verse 28, and verse 29, they fail. And there seems to be this idea of Mormon saying, these offensive wars are not going to work. You've got to defend yourself. But then there's this other idea here. Look at the end of verse 33. It talks about the Gadiantans kill many but then they bring captives into the wilderness, a great number of women and children. And so there's two views of the Gadiantans, and one of them is that they're kind of like the Alibaba and the 40 thieves. They're living out in the wilderness, and they're just snatching things, and they're just kind of living on hunting and robbing. And that's the literal reading of the text. Another way to look at this is it's a whole other system. It's a whole, the Gadiantans represent like a whole other governmental system. Daniel Peterson talks about in, in the book called Warfare in the Book of Mormon, he presents the argument that the Gadiantans were guerrilla warriors. And so this is from Brant Gardner, and he says this, Peterson is reading the text from the more direct meaning rather than looking below the level of Mormon's descriptions. Thus, he does not deal with the implications of the descriptions as much as he uses the descriptions themselves. For instance, he takes the terms plunder and rob and murder at their face value rather than as code words for the Gadiantan establishment of tribute relations through military action. Obviously, the interpretation used in Gardner's commentary, he says, requires extra cultural context and a recontextualizing of those terms. I have argued the descriptions of the events fit best into the tribute pattern established that he talks about in his commentary, particularly when the Gadiantans exercise actions described by the same terms when they controlled Zarahemla. What's he saying? Well, essentially what Gardner's saying is this, that the Gadiantans, when they rob and plunder, they are a separate entity, and they're trying to put Zarahemla and the Nephites under tribute. This is what the ancient world did. The bigger nations would conquer the lower nations. They don't want to wipe them out. Why? We're back to the Mahan principle. If Bryce's nation is smaller than mine and I can conquer it, I don't want to kill Bryce. I don't want to wipe out his people. In fact, I'm going to leave Bryce in charge. But what am I going to do every year? I'm going to remind him that I'm in charge, and I'm going to exact a massive tribute. And from Mormon's perspective, he's going to call that robbing and plundering. Now, I'm going to throw this out here. This is just like Mike Day Midrash here. But I think also where it talks about their goals is to murder. 
I think from Mormon's perspective, murder is going to be human sacrifice. If this did take place there, Mormon's going to call that murder. And so to me, I think that's another reading of the text. In other words, what we have to do is recontextualize what Mormon's saying. When he's talking about robbing and plundering and massive numbers, I mean, look at the middle of verse 31 of Helaman 11. There's huge numbers of these Gadiantans. You can't sustain a massive population without some kind of agricultural base. And if you're going to have an agricultural base, you've got to have residents, you've got to have cities, and you've got to be able to defend them. Well, now that's not necessarily just a few robbers living in the woods. That's a whole other governmental system, and they're basically exacting tribute. So I like that interpretation, but I also understand the 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 plain reading of the text. When I was first reading the Book of Mormon and I read this, that, that was the image in my mind when they were coming and robbing and then peacing out and going back to the mountains. But to me, I'm kind of in this other camp now where I read this and say, this is a whole other system. And they're leveraging the, the Nephites, they're, they're sucking the marrow out of them. They're taxing them to death. And I can't get past this, but to think about the Roman Empire in Jesus's day. The people were taxed so bad that it crushed them. And Jesus knew this. And the people wanted Jesus to wipe them out. And Jesus never says, let's go kill the Romans. And the Sicarii, the, the, it calls Judas Iscariot. He's like one of these dagger men. Judas Iscariot was like, no, let's go get him. And some of the apostles were like, Jesus, let's go wipe out Rome. And Jesus is like, no, let's wipe out the sin in our hearts. And so this is not me ranting about taxes. This is just me saying, I'm trying to give another way to read Helaman. But I think the answer to the Gadiantans isn't verse 28 and 29. In Helaman 11, 28, 29, they think the answer is we got to get our arms, we got to go blow them up, and they fail. And I think the answer is we're back to Helaman 7 through 10. We've got to look and focus on the Nephites, and that's the answer. So I really like that. All right, this was a fun one. Um, I love the book of Helaman. It is a pattern of our day. The answers are simple. The answer to wars of the heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to living among secret combinations is to have a prophet, seer, and revelator who sees through the secrets and listen and follow. We are led by great leaders. The answers to pride is to find a way to check your pride so that neither pain nor prosperity lead to pride but that both leads to humility. May we be a humble people. Thank you for listening. We'll pick it up next week with the teachings of Samuel the Lamanite. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.